Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hey friends, and welcome to Awaken. Wherever you are, however you're finding us, whether by audio or video, as one of the pastors of this little church, I'd like to say, thanks for being here. We're really glad that you're with us. Um, we recognize that maybe there are some new people who have found us since COVID-19. That's hard for us to believe, but I think that you're out there. In the event that you are, if you want to know more information about the church, uh, please contact me or uh, one of the other staff members. All of our emails are on the website. We'd love to know that you're here. I'd uh, love to tell you a little bit about our church. So if that's you, feel free to do that. Um, a couple of things before we get started, just by way of community life, some things that you should know about. The first of which is August the 4th is the next donation drive. That's 12 to 5 p.m. So uh, we did this a couple weeks ago. Great smashing success. If you participated uh, in it before, you know what to do. And if you haven't or you didn't last time, you get another shot. So uh, we're supporting a couple different local ministries and organizations, one in North Minneapolis and one in St. Paul. And Annie and Mike are heading that up. So uh, thanks to them, to those of you who volunteered, to those of you who gave, we're doing it again. So um, all, that, uh, all the things that you can give are on the website and you can bring those to the church 12 to 5 p.m. on August the 4th. The other thing is we're doing something a little different. We're pretty excited about this. Um, This building, it sits empty, and we're just like, oh my gosh, that's a travesty of all travesties. Is there any way that we could get people in this building in a way that's responsible? And so, August 27th, first time we're doing this, we're going to try this out, second and fourth Thursdays of the month. We are going to open the building from 4 to 7 p.m., for you to come and uh, you can stay as long as you like. Actually, that's not true. You can stay up to three hours from 4 to 7 p.m. And uh, really just a, a, a time to pray, to, to meditate. Uh, there'll be music playing. The Eucharist will be available. Um, there, may or, there may or may not be, depending on the evening, live music for a portion of that for you to listen to. Um, masks will be required. We'll have hand sanitizing. Um, you'll come in one door, leave another door. So we're going to try and do it in a way that's uh, the most responsible for everybody. But um, just an opportunity for you to come and be in this place uh, and do what you need to do with God. So that's August the 27th. So please uh, put that on your calendar. And I think that's all I've got. So I'm going to ask Mandy, our kids community director, to come on up. And she's got a little something for the kids this morning. So Mandy Taylor, everybody. Thanks. Hi, kids. I hope you're all having a great week. It's been a while since we've been together, which means it's been a while since we've been reading some stories from the Bible, together at least. So I'm curious who remembers the story of David and Goliath. If you remember the story, David and Goliath, I want you to jump up and down three times at home. All right. In that story, David is a young shepherd boy who defeats the giant Goliath when the Israelites were at war with the Philistines. David grows up and becomes the king of the Israelites following the reign of King Saul. Then his son Solomon becomes king after David dies. God tells Solomon that he can ask for anything. If God told you to ask for anything, what would you ask for? You'll want to think about this before blurting out an answer. Take your time. Think of an answer. Pause this. Share it with your family. What would you ask God for? I'm very curious what you all have said. I'm going to read this story about Solomon. 
from the Children of God Storybook Bible by Desmond Tutu. King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. After David died, his son Solomon became king, although he was still very young. One night, God said to him in a dream, ask for whatever you want and I will give it to you. I want to be wise, to know right from wrong so that I may be a good king. God said, because you did not ask to be rich or powerful, but to care for your people, I will bless you with both great wisdom and great wealth. Solomon became famous for his wisdom and people came from all over the world to ask him questions. In a faraway kingdom, the powerful queen of Sheba heard of Solomon and decided to test him. She asked him questions that no one in her kingdom could answer. After each question, Solomon closed his eyes for a moment and then told her the answer. The queen of Sheba was amazed. What makes you so wise? All wisdom comes from God, Solomon replied. Praise God, she said, for he has given your people a wise and righteous king. What does Solomon ask for? Yes, you're right, wisdom. Can you believe that? God said he could ask for anything. He didn't selfishly ask for a big home or a fancy chariot. He asked for wisdom so that he could be a good king for his people. He realized he was responsible for guiding a whole nation and he took that very seriously. He knew he couldn't be a good king without God's knowledge and wisdom. By the way, I think if you answered wisdom earlier, your parents should take you up for some ice cream. Just saying. What does it mean to be wise? Take some time to think about this with the people around you. What does it mean to be wise? You may have said that wisdom is having more knowledge or knowing a lot. That's correct, but there's more. It is also understanding what to do with that knowledge knowing what to do with the information that you've been given or taught or experienced in order to know what is right or wrong or how to make a good decision. We don't only need knowledge, we also need the understanding of what to do with that knowledge. So if you know that cheating on a test is wrong, wisdom would be deciding what to do with the, or to do the extra work instead of cheating. Do your own test or your own assignment. That's wisdom versus just knowing. You know that cheating is wrong. Say you're at a friend's house and your friend wants to watch a movie or play a video game that you know your parents wouldn't like you to watch or play. Wisdom would be knowing that inappropriate movies or video games aren't good for your mind. So you can either tell your friend you don't want to watch or play or creatively come up with another idea in order not to participate in something that you know isn't good for you. Another example might be a friend or sibling telling you to lie about something. You know lying is wrong, and you've maybe experienced the consequences of lying. So what would be wise, to lie or to tell the truth? Whether you're 5, 10, or 50, God wants you to be wise, and he is the best teacher in wisdom. You all have people around you who love you and care about you, and you know what? They also want you to be wise. Last week, we talked about how God can speak to us through the people around us. But in order to learn from those people, like our parents, our teachers, our grandparents, our mentors, we need to listen to what they have to say. 
Part of the reason that Solomon asked God for wisdom is because his father David taught him to be a good listener and to trust God and to honor God. Another way to grow in wisdom is to choose friends who are wise. Not in all situations, but in most, you do get to choose who you spend most of your time with. Good friends help you to be a better person. They encourage you to be wise. And you can be wise for your friends, too. And there will always be people and things hindering us to think clearly or choose wisely. And sometimes we're just going to make mistakes. Even Solomon, who is known as the wisest king, made mistakes. But we know that God is always near and ready for us to say we're sorry, and we can always ask for his help in deciding how to move forward. He is a God of mercy and love. God is our ultimate wise king who can do no wrong, and he loves us even when we don't deserve it. We're going to talk more about that next week. I want to end by asking the question, what does wisdom look like? How does it show up day to day in ways that matter? We're going to be distracted by many things that don't matter, like money, wanting more toys or nice things, being a better athlete, living in a huge house, pride, selfishness, power, the list goes on. But wisdom will bring what truly matters in our life. Wisdom, I believe, looks like being able to discern what is right and wrong. Wisdom looks like empathy. Wisdom is influence. Wisdom is caring for others. Wisdom is being intentional, connecting with God, learning new things, caring about the condition of our heart and how we treat others. Wisdom is justice and equity. Wisdom is fairness. And the list goes on. I want you guys to think about this question. What does wisdom look like in your life? Write down some words that describe what wisdom is to you. I shared some of mine, but I'm sure you have many more ideas. Share the list with those around you, or if you don't want to, just keep it between you and God. Either way, I think it's a list you're going to come back to. You might add to it as you experience God's wisdom, or you might need to remind yourself of what wisdom looks like in those situations where it's hard to find. Know that I am praying for you and all the things in your life as you learn more about wisdom. And know that I'm praying for your families during this time that we're apart. All right, let's sing the song of blessing over our kids. to sing with us and let's sing a couple worship songs together.
Friends, before we get to Lost in Translation, I was thinking about whether or not to say this because, you know, it's, it's uh, I miss you. I miss your faces and I miss your voices. And I thought, you know, like, is it helpful to really say you miss the thing that you can't really have right now? Uh, and maybe it's not, but I figured, you know, maybe it's never a bad idea for a church to know that its pastor really loves them and misses them. Um, and, you know, if there's any chance uh, of being together, if my schedule allows it, the answer is yes. Like this Saturday, I'm going to somebody's house to do a baby dedication because we can't dedicate our babies or baptize our babies uh, together, which just breaks my heart. But I'm, tra I'm traveling, old school pastor, doing house calls, traveling to do a, a dedication. So if you need your baby dedicated or baptized or, uh, uh, I don't know, if you just want, you know, a pastor to serve communion, uh, if my schedule allows, the answer is yes. And heck, I used to be a youth pastor. I can play the guitar, so I won't speak for Mel, but you know, I, I, can, I can lead a song or two. Uh, but I know that our staff, uh, you know, we've talked about, if there are ways that we can continue to serve, like, and, we, and our schedules will allow it, uh, the answer is yes for us. So uh, let us know. Uh, lost in translation, I'm back. Jenna gave me a week off last week, which I'm really grateful for. Um, tackled a really tough topic, Job, my good friend Job. Uh, my gosh, what a book, and what a great, what a great sermon. Um, very, very well done, so thank you, Jenna. Today, we're going to continue in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in Lost in Translation, in the, in the wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible, so Torah, Nevim, and Ketuvim, three distinct sections in the Hebrew Bible, and these are the writings or the wisdom and so we're in Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles, we're just doing one verse today. There's a lot there, but it's one verse. And so if you, uh, if you can stand, please do. And here it is. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes the life merry. And money is the answer for everything. <laughs> That's in the Bible. It's not a joke. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we uh, tackle this passage and the content therein, uh, be with the preacher, I pray, and give us, as always, ears to hear the small and still voice of the Spirit, eyes to see where you are at work in our lives and in our world, and the courage to step into what you're inviting us to, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and the church gathered wherever you are around the world said amen and amen. Okay, uh, a little bit of background is going to help in Ecclesiastes, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into this thing. So a few things you should know about Ecclesiastes. First and foremost, this is the heart and soul of wisdom literature in the Bible. There are three books, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, that are often kind of thought of when you say wisdom literature in the Bible, those are the three. 
Um, Ecclesiastes is also one of the five scrolls that is read in its entirety during the Jewish calendar year in one of the festivals. This one, Ecclesiastes, happens to be read in the festival called Sukkot, or the festival of booths, which is in the fall, and that celebrates the tabernacling or the presence of God among the people in the wilderness. Um, it is commonly attributed to Solomon because on face value, that's, that's what it says. And okay, fine. However, the more you dig, the more you might realize that the dating's a little off for that. And so a lot of um, many scholars uh, would, would agree that this is a scribe or an official in the court during the Persian occupancy of, the Israel, uh, of Israel. So like 400 to 200 BCE, somewhere in there. And this book gives interpreters fits for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, it, is, uh, it both upholds the, the commandments of God in righteous living and also says it kind of really doesn't matter. Like, um, there's all sorts of weird, bizarre, unexplainable things that happen in life, and so, so be it. So it, it sort of offers both perspectives in the same book. So which one is true? Well, in this case, both, ironically enough. Um, but also, it's a collection of poetry and prose, it has uh, both first-person narrative and third-person commentary. It has these short little quippy, you know, uh, wisdom sayings as well as these long sections of um, like narration almost. And, and it's all about like the vagaries of life. And so uh, it gets a bit dark. It's a little depressing at times. And so commentators and interpreters have a tricky time with it. Um, one of the major themes in the book and really of all the wisdom literature is the question, how to live well, or what does one need to live well? The book of Proverbs offers wisdom as the key, but the book of Ecclesiastes kind of says, nah, you might want to think twice about that because there are all sorts of inexplainable things that happen in your life, and even though you might live a righteous life, you may end up like Job, right? Uh, which we learned a little bit about last week. Um, if you haven't, oh, also one should note, this book is, feels very patriarchal because it is. It's written by a man. The assumed uh, audience are men. It only speaks about women in like derogatory or pejorative terms like slaves, um, concubines, mothers, wives. And when it does address women, it's like, you know, uh, a, a complaining wife is like a dripping faucet. It is patriarchal, so that's why it might feel that way. Uh, so if anyone ever says that to you, you can say, oh yeah, that's because it is. Um, if you've never watched the Bible Project and their videos on scripture, I would highly recommend it. Here I'm borrowing a few items from them and their work is brilliant. I would even go so far as to say you, you, if you have extra cash laying around, support what they do, so good. But there's two voices in Ecclesiastes. There's the critic and there is the teacher. The critic takes up most of the time, which is why it gets a little dark, a little depressing. It's kind of angsty, a little teenagery. And then the teacher saves the best words for last. So he gets kind of the last word. And the critic is concerned with really three major themes, and they're all pretty dark. Uh, one is the, the march of time. Uh, the second is that we're all going to die. And the third is that uh, life is a bit random in nature. So the march of time is this idea that, like, on the scale of things, your life and my life is a blip on the radar. It occupies very little space in the grand cosmic scheme of things. And ultimately, your fate and my fate, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, is death. Death will come for all, like taxes, uh, the two certainties in life. Uh, so the march of time, death is coming for all, and then sort of the random nature of things. Um, and we really get this in the book of Job a little bit, that 
Proverbs is offering a very causative or cause and effect way of thinking about the world and about life, that if you do this, then this will happen to you. But Ecclesiastes is a bit like the postmodern skeptic saying, I'm not sure that that's really true. And, um, and offers some, points out the random nature of the universe and the way things go. It's like a giant game of Plinko to the critic in Ecclesiastes. If you've ever seen Plinko, you drop it in and you may end up way over here, you know, rich or you may end up over here poor and nobody really knows why. So there you go, Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Um, used in the book is the term hevel, which means is translated meaningless or vanity. It's used over 40 times, which is why it feels so de despairing at times. Meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. But maybe best translated like vapor or smoke. And the author is not trying to say that like life is meaningless or there is no meaning to life, but rather it's like vapor. It, it, it's here today and gone tomorrow. You try to grasp it and it like goes through your fingers. You can't quantify it or box it up. It just is there or not. Um, so in the end, the teacher, as I said, gets the last word and boils it down and says this, revere God and keep his commandments because essentially God's justice is true and right. So that's Ecclesiastes kind of in a nutshell. That's the background. But what about our passage? A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. Sounds very American. That's not in my notes. Also, if you're thinking, hey, I think that's my mug. It's probably because it is. I needed something to drink from, and I went to the lost and found, and I found this. So if you're missing a mug, this is it. Um... Okay, a feast is made for laughter, wine makes the life merry, and uh, money is the answer for everything. This comes at a later portion of the book. I think there's only 12 chapters. This comes in chapter 10. And it comes in a, in a section where the writer sounds a lot more like the, wis, the, the proverb, the writer of Proverbs in The Woman of Wisdom. Um, but here's the thing. You can't really get to the bottom of this passage unless you take this thing in context. And this is why it's a great lost in translation passage. One, because it says money is the answer for everything. But two, because it proves the point that context, context, context matters the most in biblical interpretation. In real estate, it's location, location, location. In the Bible, it's context, context, context. And it also shows the danger of proof texting because you can make the Bible say anything you want. So the first 15 chapters of chapter 10 which is our chapter, are filled with all the sort of quippy sayings, right? Things like, if you dig a pit, you'll fall into it. If you, uh, you quarry rocks, you'll be hurt by them. If the ax is dull, you have to exert more strength. Yes, true. But then verse 16 sets up what we get in verse 19. So here's how it reads. Woe to the land whose king was a servant, whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land, verse 17, whose king is of noble birth, whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes the life merry. And money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom. At which point you ask, like, is the mudroom okay? No, it's not. Because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. So this section of Ecclesiastes really is getting at the importance of leadership and the power of our words. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk briefly about leadership and what we desire and the value or the importance of our words and how we use them. So we're just going to sort of walk through this passage. We're going to stop and see what we see, kind of like a nature walk. Um, it's going to be a good old-fashioned Bible study, friends. So let's start with verse 16. 
where we get the writer giving the first of uh, a few like this or that's friend or foe, folly or wisdom or folly. And he begins with foe and folly in verse 16 when he says, woe to the land whose king was a servant whose princes feast in the morning. Now, if I were to modernize this passage and I were to fill out some of the context for you in terms of the words that are being translated, particularly servant and prince, I might say something like this. Woe to the country whose president acts like a child and whose leaders and officials waste their most productive hours when they should be serving others by serving serving themselves and satisfying their appetites. Um, Okay, so the word that gets translated servant is na'ar, and it can be translated boy, lad, servant, youth, retainer. And while servant is a lexical possibility, I would argue in a lot of Jewish sources and even the King James Version, of which, you know, we're not a King James Version church, but it is a great translation. Um, They translate it child. What's the critic saying? You're in big trouble if your elected leaders act like children. Like, woe unto you. Like, it's going to be bad news bears. Does anybody remember that movie? (sighs) And I'm just speaking hypothetically here. Like, but you're in big trouble if your elected officials are serving themselves in excess at the most important moments. Like, it's not going to be good. The Benson Commentary writes it this way. These people give themselves up to eating and drinking at that time of day, which is most fit for God's service, for the dispatch of weighty affairs and for sitting in judgment. Verse 16 reminds me that leadership matters, that integrity matters, that character counts, that these things, they are not insignificant, they are substantive and they impact and influence the trajectory of a life of a community, of a church, of an organization, of a country, of a land, of a kingdom. So woe to you if your king is acting like a child. Woe to you if your princes, your elected officials are satisfying their cravings at hours of the day when they should be serving the people. Question. Do you have any influence? Like, are you a leader in any way, shape, or form? Like, the Bible's interesting because we can always read it about those people. But the moment we stop and ask, am I a leader? I'm not a king. I'm not a president. I'm a pastor. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I live in a community. I go to work. I go to school. So I would argue if you're listening to this podcast, you have leadership and you have influence. So... Woe unto you if the organization you're leading is led by people who are acting like children. It's not just about those people over there. It's about us. It's about me. It's about you. So what kinds of people are we becoming? We've talked about this before, but what are the practices that are in place now to help you become the kind of person you want to be in a year? And if you don't like the kind of person that you are right now, there's a really good chance you made some decisions six months, 12 months ago that got you to where you are now. This is Proverbs. Like you reap what you sow in some cases, in most cases. So verse 16 isn't about those people, that president, that party. It's about you and it's about me. And it's about them. It's about us. And the writer's saying, leadership matters. And integrity matters, and character, it counts for something. 
The writer goes on and he flips the coin and says, blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth, whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Blessed and favorable. Think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you, dot, dot, dot. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the same vein. Blessed are those, blessed favorable is the country whose leader is not just of noble birth, but acts nobly. Whose elected officials eat in due season would be a, a, a really good translation of that word. Think of the birds. They sang about it, right? Every season, turn, turn, turn. There's a time for everything. And blessed is the country whose officials like, do things in proper season for the purpose of being fit for the task for which they're called and not for their own pleasure or their own satisfaction. And here the writer seems to have the prophet Isaiah in mind. Chapter 32 of Isaiah says, No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected, for fools speak folly, their hearts are bent on evil. The scoundrels use wicked methods, make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies. But the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. So the writer of Ecclesiastes says, blessed are you if your king is of noble birth, but not just if they're right from the right line or the right family or the right side of the tracks, but if they act nobly, if they act with integrity, if they act with character. So it's not just bloodlines here. It's not just, uh, um, you know, uh, coming from the right family or having the right resources, but rather, blessed is the country, the organization, the family, the, the church, the leadership structure whose leaders act in noble ways, whose elected officials are doing things in proper time and in due season, who are wise with their judgment. He flips the coin back. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leak. leaks. Because of their laziness and their idle hands, the rafters seek. The, house, the, the, the roof leaks. Like the things that support the structure of the house, the rafters themselves, they're not cared for. They're, they're, they're derelict. They are falling apart. And the roof itself, which keeps the inclement weather out, is, is failing. Like, if you, have you ever driven by that house on that block? Or maybe that's your neighbor, or maybe that's your house. But either way, you know, the shrubs around the foundation are growing, they're overgrown and now trees are growing and the roots are destroying the foundation all under the ground. Nobody sees it happening, but those who have an eye for it know that house is in, is in trouble. The trees are overgrown, the fascia boards are covered and the soffits are getting, you know, the paint's peeling and there's moss growing on the roofs because there's not enough airflow around the house. I mean, now you watch enough this old house and you'll know what I'm talking about. But the point is this, little things add up. And maintenance, though it may not be fun all the time, is important. And I'm saying this to an eight who has a bit of ADD and who loves to be with the next thing or the next person who's always, ah! Paying attention to the structural things that hold up the house is a wise leader. So what are the important things in your life that keep the structure sound? It's not just about them, it's about us. What are the maintenance needs that need to be attended to on a regular basis? What are the things that keep you sane and, and well in mind, body, and soul? I shared last week, my dad died a couple of weeks ago and I have an appointment with my spiritual director. I don't really want to talk about that but I know that I need to, and I know that it affects me, and it affects my soul, and so I'm going to go see Joel. 
because the rafters need to be strong and the, and the roof needs to not leak. And then we get to our verse. Directed at the foolish leaders of the world. Directed at the foolish kings who, who, who are, are in the time of the writer. Imagine the critic kind of leaning in and saying, these kings and these leaders, they say a feast is made for laughter and wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything. I love this quote from the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges. Regardless of their duty as rulers and the sufferings of their people, they aim only at self-indulgence and they look to money, however gained, as a means of satisfying their desire. This is who the critic, I would argue, is, is, is leveling this verse to. What the critic is not saying is, yeah, um, a feast is made for laughter, so eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Dave Matthews was right in the end. And money actually is the answer for everything. That's not what he's saying. He's actually using it as, a, as, a, as sort of a, a rhetorical device. The leaders who are foolish and whose rafters are sagging and whose roof is leaking say, a feast is made for laughter and wine makes the life merry and money is the answer for everything. Now, before you go too far and you start building a bunch of fences, here's where I wanna make sure that we employ a little bit of sound judgment and we, 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 we allow for some nuance and we reject dualistic either or thinking because who's been to a feast with an abundance of food and where there was laughter and joy and really enjoyed themselves? <laughs> uh, who's been to a party that had a stocked bar and a lot of fun and a lot of joy. Maybe not drunkenness. I've been to that party. I've hosted that party. I love that party. And who's been the recipient of money and resource that met a need at a time that you needed it? So the author is not rejecting all of these things. These things in and of themselves are not evil, foolish, or problematic. But in the hands of a fool, they can be and they do bring destruction and danger. One of the lies that we're told in the world that we live in is that it's, and it's been around for a long time, clearly, it's been around for thousands of years, is that these things, food, wine, money, in and of themselves are what we desire and what will bring joy and fulfillment. So if you were my children, I would say, I need eyes. Food is not the enemy. In and of itself, or, or food is not the end in and of itself, I should say. It's a means to an end. We've sit at the dinner table. <laughs> I can't tell you if I had a quarter for every time I've said this. I'm like, would you just take a breath and like enjoy your food? Because this is not the end in and of itself. Like it, it, it's, it's a part of a process. It's a part of a community experience. And we don't get this much in our culture. And I kind of wish we did. Sometimes I wish I did grow up in another part of the world so that I had a different relationship with food. But food is not the end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. It's a part of a larger conversation about sustenance. It's about our bodies and it's about community and relationship. Wine and alcohol is not the end in and of itself. It will not bring you satisfaction, but it is a part of a, a larger conversation around joy and community and relationship. It's not the end in and of itself, but it is a means to an end. It's a vehicle. It's a part of another, of a larger conversation. Money will not satisfy the deepest desires of your soul. I have to tell myself that all the time. I drive by Oxendales right by my house, and every time I drive by, I see, you know, Powerball, 122, go for whatever, 126 million, and I think to myself, what would I do with 126 million dollars? I'd probably have the same problems that I do now, except bigger. 
Money does not satisfy. Food, wine, money, they are not the answer. Ecclesiastes 10 is about the leaders who lead and what happens when their desire gets stuck or pointed in the wrong direction. When they mistake a means to an end for the end in and of itself. When they are foolish and in the hands of a fool, these things which have power in our lives go awry. So what is the direction? Again, I would turn to Isaiah. The prophet gives a beautiful vision of the kingdom, I would argue, in Isaiah 55, where he says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. All you who have no money, come, buy and eat. How does that work? Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread? Why your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Listen, listen, listen to me. Eat tov, eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give an ear, turn your ear, and come to me. Listen, and you will live. This, to me, is the invitation of the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. The kind of kingdom that's upside down and doesn't make sense. How do you buy food with no money? This kingdom doesn't operate by the rules of this world. And so Jesus says, come. There's enough for everyone. Where the longings of our souls are met by a kind and benevolent and abundant God. Where scarcity is not the norm. But where abundance and blessing is. Where competition that inevitably leaves someone out and on the margins is no longer necessary. God, would that be amazing? And I do not use the Lord's name in vain there. So may it be of us, the church of Jesus, that we are always pursuing that vision, pledging our allegiance to that kingdom, pursuing that kind of way of being, not capitalism and democracy as the, as the, the, the be-all, end-all. No, the kingdom of God, the one that Jesus speaks about. The one that the writer of Ecclesiastes is intimating at, he's hinting at, he's saying, the wise get this, they see this part that I'm speaking of. The fool thinks that wine and food and money answer all of our problems. They don't. Now, in the time we have left, a few words about words. Verse 20, do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. The critic basically says, don't curse the king in your mind or in your heart because you don't know where those words will end up. Let me just pause for a moment. Are you guilty of cursing any elected officials lately? Are you guilty of reviling in your heart or mind those who are in leadership? And how easy is it to curse Trump or Biden or Pelosi or Schumer, whatever your party is or isn't? Especially in our social media world, like you only need 144 characters to do it. And there's no recourse when you do. And you think to yourself, I'm in the game. I'm saying something. I'm doing something. I'm not silent. Silence is violence. As one of your pastors who is charged with the care of your heart, mind, soul, and well-being in some ways, a question I'd like you to consider when you speak about someone who is in leadership, whether it be that your country, your workplace, your church, your community, your family, is this. What is my intention by saying what I'm about to say, and who does it serve? 
We're responsible for both our intention and our impact. But when we start talking about words and how tricky they are, a question I like to ask myself is, what am I intending? By saying what I'm about to say, what's my intention? And connected to that, who does it serve? More often than not, if I'm being totally honest, it serves me. And that seems to go against the grain of the Jesus way. That seems to go against the flow that Jesus is inviting us into, which is about selfless giving of one another, of oneself to another. This is the Trinity. This is the circle dance of God. Because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Do you guys remember Game of Thrones? There was this guy named Lord Varys. He was the master of whisperers. And he had what he called little birds all around the realm. And the little birds were always listening. And he would always say things like, you never know what the little birds are going to hear. And isn't that true? When you speak something into the world, you don't know where those words will go or who will hear them. As a pastor who is recorded, man, I have learned that lesson the hard way. My wife and I have this image of communication and it's of a bird. When we, even when we were like in college and going through premarital counseling, I feel like very early on in our marriage, we talked about communication as a bird, that once you let that bird out of the cage, it does not tend to come back in, ever. So Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 19. A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. Or is it? What kind of leader are you becoming? What kind of influence do you have and how do you wield it? What do you desire? What are the desires of your heart? What are the longings that you have and what do you think will truly satisfy? And, and how do you use your words? In the hands of a fool, food and wine and money can be very destructive and often are. So we need not throw these things out with the bathwater, but rather ask the better question. What kind of person handles those things well? What, who is the wise leader? How do they use their time? What are they investing themselves in? Do the rafters sag and is the roof leaking or is there maintenance being done over the long haul to make sure that the structure is sound? And what words are we choosing to use? Pray with me, and I'll invite you to a time of silence, and then eventually to the table. Jesus, I pray that in the next few moments of silence, as we consider the words of the writer, that by your spirit you would be present to us, that you might shine a light on the places that are dark in our hearts, that we would hear and allow the seeds of wisdom to be planted and grow deep in us, that we might be people who uh, become leaders, who are fit for the task of service and of sacrifice. So Holy Spirit, speak to us now, I pray.
So before we make our way to the table, uh, we've asked John to join us today and to offer this song, which I don't know how many of you were here the day he played it at Awaken for the first time, but uh, I remember that moment when I heard this song the first time and how powerful it was and how it uh, gets right to the heart of what I think the writer is saying and what we as a community are saying and what we want to be true of us. So, um, yeah. In the morning when I rise In the morning when I rise In the morning when I rise Give me Jesus And when I lay me down to sleep when I lay me down to sleep When I lay me down to sleep Give me Jesus Give me Jesus Give me Jesus You can have all can have all the world You can have all the world But give me Jesus Give me Jesus Give me Jesus Lord when I'm all alone Yes, and when I'm all alone Lord, and when I'm all alone Give me Jesus And when I'm in a crowd Lord, and when I'm in a crowd Listen when I'm in a crowd, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all the world. You can have all the can have all the world, but give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Oh, and when I come to die, Yes, and when I come to die Lord, and when I come to die Give me Jesus
that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. Don't forget the things I've taught you and the way in which I walked around in this world. And in the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is a new covenant written in my blood. And whenever you drink of it, remember me. And so, as you come to this table, you should know that this table is not the table of the church, though it has, that has been attempted, but it is the table of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have faith, you who have little faith, you who have been here often or maybe not for a very long time or ever before, uh, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come to the table, not because I invite you or the church invites you, but because the resurrected Christ invites you to come and to be fed. So as you take the bread, pass it around. If you're with others, hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. as you take this cup and receive its content, hear these words. The blood of Christ shed for you to take and drink. So friends of Awaken, it is my joy and honor to be one of your pastors. And even in the midst of circumstances where we wish we were together, but we're not. And so I would say to you, as you go, wherever it is you're going, to be with whoever it is you will be with, know that you are blessed. The, the Lord is blessing you and keeping you. The Lord is lifting up his face and shining upon you and is being gracious unto you, even in this moment. And the Lord's countenance is lifted up to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace, my friends. We'll see you next week.
Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community. Or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.